poking holes in the prosecution's case. And with this freedom, they've begun to explore new narratives. Both Emma and Dee want you to know that they'd never deal drugs. And they never sold any cocaine to Caden. The worst you can say is that Dee has an anger management problem. But Dee is getting it under control. Just five days before the trial, for supplying the lethal cocaine was to begin, a judge dismissed the case. They'd been scheduled to be tried in the county where the death had occurred, rather than where the cocaine had been originally ingested. But their good fortune might be short-lived. All a fuming Centralia detective who'd been involved in the case from the morning he'd found Young's inert body would say is, we're not going to let this case disappear. And he's not alone. The case hasn't disappeared from the thoughts of the Koberger defense team either. It's a touchstone, according to people familiar with their inquiries, that has the team digging deep into the possibility of narcotics trafficking along Greek Row in Moscow and wondering whether these furtive activities might have played a part in the murders. What, if anything, they've uncovered is wrapped up tight by the iron bands of the gag order but now, having caught the scent, I head off on my own. I want to know what they want to know. The overview offered by the Seattle DEA field office is a tale of cutthroat international intrigue. A pipeline that runs from China, where the fentanyl precursor chemicals are produced, to the sinister Sinaloa and Jalisco cartels in Mexico which manufacture the drugs and then smuggle the too often lethal product to their distribution networks in the northwestern urban hubs such as Seattle and Spokane. Then, with the eager help of a freelance army of small-time distributors, the tentacles of the octopus reach into the seemingly wholesome all-American counties and college towns stretching across the great outdoors. That's the view from a thousand feet. But Sheriff Brett Myers, head of the Quad City Drug Task Force, a multi-jurisdictional team propped up, in part by federal money, whose territory includes the university towns of Moscow and Pullman, along with the Lewis Clark State College in Lewiston, Idaho, offers a ground-level account. And it's enough to give anyone whose kid is heading off to college in the area the willies. Matter of factly, the sheriff shares that his task force is working with college kids in the local schools whom they've caught dealing MDMA and cocaine, flipping them, and then using the students to go after the big local dealers. And once the scared witless college kids have helped his team ID the foot soldiers. They go up the ladder to get the people tied to the cartels in the cities. Sounds pretty dangerous for kids, I suggest. It could be. There are some seriously tough guys running this business. Full of resolve, though, he adds. But we're game to do that every day of the week. And with that disconcerting prelude, I steer the conversation 
to the murders of the four University of Idaho students. The sheriff concedes that while it's a small local law enforcement community, he's not specifically involved in the investigation and therefore not constrained by the gag order. So there are a lot of unanswered questions he acknowledges. Pressed further, he candidly goes on. Could it have been a drug-related case? I can't rule it out. It's not improbable. From what I know, that would answer a lot of questions. But this is all abstraction, and moving on from the sheriff, my search turns to a concrete inquiry. Did any of the victims know Bailey and Robinson? And my inquiries conclude with an unqualified maybe. Ashlyn Couch, then a University of Idaho senior, was an original signer of the lease on the King Road house with the others, but she never moved in. Nevertheless, she remained a friend, as well as a sorority sister of several of the residents, and according to some reports, she would visit from time to time. Couch also follows Bailey on Instagram, which could mean something or nothing. But does it lead to another question? Did Bailey know Koberger? And this query has persuaded investigators associated with the defense to revisit Brian Koberger's first day in Moscow. Church versus state. If it hadn't been for his father, Koberger might not have been invited to the pool party. Michael Koberger had dutifully made the cross-country road trip from the family home in the Poconos with his son last summer to Pullman as Brian prepared to start graduate school. It was, he might very well have felt, a gesture sparked by parental concern. After all, Michael certainly knew only too well how difficult and mercurial his son's moods could run. And he wanted to help Brian settle into his new life as a graduate student at Washington State. On the other side of the country, the young man's first extended trip away from home. He could have also been suffering a father's guilt over the rough road his son's life had traveled. Heroin addiction, a torrent of psychological problems, as well as the hard scrabble experience of being pulled along through the family's two bankruptcies. Now that things were seemingly back on track, Michael wanted to do what he could to make amends. And so when Michael was crossing the parking lot of the apartment complex on Northeast Valley Road, a stone's throw away from the WSU campus, and spotted his son's new next door neighbor, Christian Martinez, he hurried over to him. He wanted the burly, married military veterans help. Michael confided that his son had a hard time making friends. He was shy. Could Martinez maybe look out for him? That chance encounter led Martinez to invite his new neighbor to a pool party on July 9th at the Grove, a clapboard complex of buildings filled with college kids, mostly University of Idaho students, a 15-minute or so drive across the state line in Moscow. Thanks! I have to run and get trunks, Koberger texts back. And so while Zach, also known as DJ Grape Vinyl Cartwright, 
a muscular PhD in food science. With the countenance of an Aztec chef dame and a jet black man bun, man the turntables. Koberger and his new trunks perched at the shallow end of the large pool. Bad Bunny wailed from the speakers, imploring, Party, 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 party. party, party. Chicken and steak were being grilled to make tacos. There was beer, wine, and tequila. The sun was blinding. There must have been a hundred or more college kids on the deck, surrounding the two large ovals that formed the pristine blue pool. And just down the hill from the housing complex, close enough for Bad Bunny to come rattling through its windows, was the Moscow Police Headquarters. Taking a seat next to Koberger was Bathus Salamjohn, a laid-back, darkly handsome, off-and-on WSU undergraduate who was friends with Martinez and Cartwright. He and Koberger got to talking, and while the details of the conversation have long been forgotten, Salamjohn vividly remembers how the dude would talk, chin up, straight into my face. We were just shooting shit, he says. But he was definitely one serious dude. Nice enough, though. Then Salamjohn stood up and went off to dance. So Koberger, perhaps not wanting to be a wallflower as the party was gathering steam, went over to talk to the DJ. He was asking me about my speakers. All kinds of technical stuff Cartwright remembers. But he had this way about him. You know all those people who just don't understand personal space? He was one of them. He'd get real close. It was off-putting. Finally, Cartwright told his new acquaintance, I'm DJing, man. I'll catch you later. With that, Koberger returned to the shallow end of the pool. And before too long, Salem John returned. And he witnessed two events. And in their pregnant way are provocative footnotes to all that would happen in Moscow just a few months later. He watched as Koberger abruptly jumped up without warning and approached a girl in a black thong bikini with pink hair and a complex tattoo design on her left thigh. Then Koberger, after only a brief conversation, asked her for her phone number, and he got it. Next, as if a man on a mission, he turned to the pink-haired woman's friend, also in a black two-piece, and asked for her number too. He succeeded once again. Only after that, perhaps feeling he'd accomplish all he'd set out to do. More, in fact. Brian quietly shuffled off while the party was just hitting a groove. He said no goodbyes. Did he ever call the two women? They insist he didn't. At least not long enough to speak to them. As it happens, both women received several hang-up calls in the aftermath of the party. But neither of them had any thoughts about who the culprit might have been until Koberger's arrest. And by then, the FBI was inquiring into what went on at the pool party. The agents commandeered a room at the red brick Lightly Student Services Building, adjacent to the main WSU campus, and with a professional politeness that impressed the students, began interviewing anyone who knew Koberger. In the process, they inquired if anyone had any photos or even a video from the July 9th pool party. 
a few were produced. It was not an extensive record of the festivities, more of a haphazard collection of snapshots, and at least one brief, somewhat random video. The agents were searching for Gonsalves, Mogan, Kernodal, or Chapin. They could not find them, which means they weren't at the Grove pool party. Or they simply didn't appear in the photos that were taken that day. Or maybe they just weren't in the handful that were shared with the Bureau. But what if the FBI's review, done last November in the early stages of the investigation, was too narrow? What if they'd scrutinized the pictures and the video and had ignored the possible presence of another guest whose appearance could put a new spin on what happened at the house on King Road? What if Emma Bailey had been at the pool party? If she had been, that she might very well have also been approached by Koberger on the make. And if, as the police allege, she was in the habit of dealing recreational drugs, it might have been a connection a one-time heroin addict like Koberger would have relished. It might have been a connection that, unlike his approaches to the other two female partygoers, could have had some longevity. In fact, he might have even visited Bailey from time to time at her home in Moscow, which, as it happens, was tucked into the very end of a cul-de-sac, a minute or so away from the murder house by car, which would put it very much within the same incriminating cell tower radius as the crime scene on King Road. And this becomes an even more tantalizing hypothesis because of an explosive motion the defense submitted earlier this week that Koberger has an alibi. Evidence corroborating Mr. Koberger being at a location other than the King Road address will be disclosed, Ann Taylor wrote in the court filing. Only with a dramatic flare, she coyly did not release any further details. Presumably, all will be disclosed at trial. But for now, the defense's motion makes one more provocative question very relevant. So, was Emma at the party? I talked to seven people who had been there, and the responses I got, all shared after a good deal of thought, ran the gamut from, I think she was, to, she might have been. But no one said she definitely was. And no one said she definitely wasn't. In short, there remains enough for the defense to seek its teeth into. And it offers the promise of a narrative that can be presented to a jury as a hypothetical alternative to the version presented by the prosecution. And in the end, with the dark cloud of the death penalty hovering over the proceedings, that's what it will come down to, convincing a jury the jurors will decide whether the state has presented a sort of airtight case that will justify its taking one more life in retribution for the four that were already extinguished. In a heartland community such as Moscow, I had expected that a predilection for Old Testament eye-for-an-eye justice would rule. The prosecution, despite the many deficiencies in its storyline, will nevertheless not need to work too hard to spin a narrative that will catapult Kohlberger 
into the execution chamber. But it takes just a conversation with Pastor Doug Wilson, the head of the town's ultra-conservative Christ Church, to convince me that I am wrong. The Kirkers, as the parishioners are commonly known, are increasingly a dominating presence in Moscow. Already 2,000 or so strong, perhaps nearly a half of the town's non-university affiliated jury pool, they control a bookstore and a coffee shop on Main Street, as well as two separate real estate offices and their own college. Only here's the thing, the church, as personified by Wilson, is in a state of war with the town authorities, including the police department, whose investigation had built the case against Koberger. Last Christmas, just before Koberger's arrest, Wilson shared his raw feelings about the town father in one of the weekly encyclicals that he sent to his flock. Our local government, law enforcement included, is a nest of incompetence and corruption, he told the church members. And rather than turning the other cheek, he went on with measured force. If the additional scrutiny over the murder cases is part of what brings about a much-needed house cleaning, then we should be grateful for that, but without any unlawful gloating. The roots of this church-state animosity stem from several police arrests and subsequent lawsuits local officials filed against Christ Church parishioners, including Wilson's son and his grandson, the latter now a student at New York's Columbia University. For a maskless public pray-in during the pandemic and a few stickers protesting coronavirus restrictions affixed to a town lamppost. And when I recently spoke with Wilson in his book-lined windowless office just off Main Street, he was still unforgiving. You'd think we'd be a natural constituency for back the blue. But after what we have experienced, I think that if any of my parishioners are on the jury, I'd tell them to go in with an open mind, he asserted without hesitation. And, he added pointedly, if a Moscow cop were to testify against Koberger, his parishioners would have reason to be skeptical. After all, we know that their officers have lied on the stand before, referring to the cases involving his son and grandson. As if all this were not enough to keep the prosecution up at night, Wilson did not flinch from making his way to what is now the bottom legal line of the Moscow murders. From what I've read, there are a lot of problems with the case, he said. There are a lot of questions that still need to be answered. He concluded with a firm and indignant blast. I think it's very possible the prosecution has the wrong man. Driving down a steep hill in the late afternoon on a blazing summer's day in Moscow, I pass a sign announcing the university golf course. I stare out the car window toward a perfectly manicured green lawn that appeared to stretch toward the horizon. And my thoughts returned to an entry I had read a few days earlier in the police blotter of the Moscow Pullman Daily News. It reported, 7.11 p.m. 
a moose was spotted on the University of Idaho golf course. Police were unable to locate it. Now that, I thought with an amused, if not superior smile, was more like the sort of mystery that one would expect to find in the seemingly ordinary northwestern college town. But that musing quickly took a back seat to the matter at hand. The road abruptly twisted, and then I followed a precipitous dip into a gully where a half dozen or so ramshackle trailers were scattered. I drove slowly, scanning each one for the number I was searching for, and then I found it. The trailer's windows were dark, and the curtains were closed. The small front porch was littered like a junkyard. A broken reddish table chair, an umbrella opened as if for a sudden downpour. An assortment of what I guessed were once end tables, used to flank a sofa, and a small pyramid of empty flower pots. When I knocked on the door, there was no response. So I rapped more forcefully. But still, the only sound was the echo that traveled through the gully. I returned to my car to wait for the registered sex offender. He was a relative of someone who had a connection to Emma Bailey, and I wanted to believe he'd provide testimony that could clarify Koberger's relationship to all the mysteries that had occurred in Moscow on that night last November. I was hoping he could turn hypotheses into fact. As time passed, my wait grew increasingly unnerving, even creepy. No one approached my car to ask what I was doing there or if I was meeting someone, but I could see lights turn on in a few of the trailers and the flickering of window curtains. I could feel eyes being fixed on me. I turned my car around so that the hood was pointed towards the top of the gully. That way, I'd be able to make a quick escape if necessary. Fortified by that small reassurance, I continued to wait. But the man never showed, and as it grew dark, I lost my nerve. I quickly drove out of the trailer park. Since there wasn't sufficient shoulder to execute a U-turn, I followed the unpaved road out of town. I was surrounded by wild land, territory as vacant as when the region's first homesteaders had arrived. In the gloaming, I could make out the low, undulating dune-like hills of the Palouse. And beyond them stretch uncultivated fields, even in the encroaching darkness, still vivid with the strong blues and yellows of blankets of wild camas plants. That's when I saw the moose. It was loping over a distant rolling field, or at least I think I saw it. I'm certain that I saw something. And to me, a city boy, it sure looked like a moose. Was this the moose the local cops had been unable to locate? Had I succeeded where they failed? And I found myself wondering, not for the first time, what else had they missed? What else was out there scurrying off into the deep, protective darkness. <laughs>